Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. seen across the series so far, ideas, disease and medicine are nothing if not mobile. There's a global history to medicine, from the spread of disease to the exchange of ideas, which can often be forgotten when we focus tightly on certain regions or countries. One of the very oldest infectious diseases, for example, smallpox, is testament to this. The earliest written descriptions of the disease come from ancient India and ancient China. However, studies on the body of the Egyptian king Ramesses V have revealed evidence of smallpox on his body. It's therefore believed that the disease was carried from Egypt to India, then from India to China and then to Japan, where a major outbreak in the 8th century killed a third of the Japanese population. In this episode, we're going to travel hundreds of years and thousands of miles to see how the early modern period heralded a new phase of globalisation, one which presented people with fresh challenges, astonishing breakthroughs and unimaginable cruelty. It's a story where everyday items such as tea, coffee and even gin and tonic are just as wrapped up in the global history of medicine as the body of Ramesses V. Let's first see what our sick-to-death object is today. Dean Patton, you are the head honcho at Sick to Death. What objects do you have for us? Well, it may not seem as exciting as some of the others. It's not quite a flayed hanging man or a set of medical tools, but it's actually tea and coffee. So it's tea and coffee that's in our staff room we have, but also we have on display from the Grosvenor Museum. We have some coffee trade tokens and some tea paraphernalia from the Victorian period, which again might not link immediately to medicine, but what they do tell us about is Chester and, and the Britain's place in, in world trade and how the world you know, started to get a little bit smaller. It was easy to move things across from one side of the world to the other, be that tea or coffee, spices, or actually diseases and illness. So the, the, the story of medicine you know, expands around the world and these objects kind of reflect that. So if anyone's visiting and having a coffee before, they can think that they're, they're actually drinking something that's steeped in, in history. Absolutely. It's about that period of time where, you know, Chester as well as, as a very important and trading port was bringing in these goods and, and making money from these goods. But as we know, there was a lot more things coming in on those ships than just just tea and coffee uh, from, you know, plague rats through to through to medical ideas as well. Beverages such as tea and coffee are classed as intoxicants and we'll explore their use very shortly. Today we're going to focus on two global histories, the transatlantic slave trade and the story of malaria and quinine. Professor Manuel Barcia Paz is the author of The Yellow Demon of Fever, Fighting Disease in the 19th Century Transatlantic Slave Trade, and has explored the ways in which the blending of continental populations brought with it a whole raft of new medical challenges. There, there is an exchange of uh, diseases as soon as Europeans arrive in the Americas, and, and this goes both ways as well. We know, for instance, that smallpox decimated entire populations in the Americas. But we also know that syphilis, for instance, was, a, was an, a, a disease of the Americas is going to be contracted and taken back to Europe by, by Europeans. 
concept, the transatlantic slave trade begins, we know, for instance, hepatitis B arrived from Africa, and we also know yellow fever, some type of malaria arrived from Africa as well. Both bacterial and viral infections were very common. Cholera as well, eventually. A little later on the other side of the world, we see a similar story play out in colonised Australia, where Europeans passed on epidemic diseases to the Aboriginal population, from smallpox, syphilis and tuberculosis, to influenza and measles, each of which caused excessive mortality. The cultural reactions to these new diseases in the Americas was mixed. Human beings really haven't changed that much in the past four or five hundred years, so I would probably said the fear was the main reaction, fear of death, fear of getting sick. But there is also the hate for, for the unknown, including foreigners, including strangers. Fear is, is usually the most important the most important reaction. And you have to understand as well that they, they don't know what the reasons for these diseases are. These people are going to spend centuries trying to figure out how yellow fever is transmitted. And, and in the 19th century, you have people saying, I have noticed that people who get bitten by mosquitoes, the, the more mosquito what you get, the more likely you are to get yellow fever. That's it. That's as far as it go. So they, they cannot really make the connection because before the, the microscope, people can actually have access to, to all these new technologies of the 19th century. They, they are not really aware of um, any microorganisms, being bacteria or even viruses are even smaller. So they are they're really pretty much is trying trying to 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 deal with things they cannot understand and they blame on on foreigners or they blame on the weather or they blame on on the sun or the rain or 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 swamps or whatever they can come up with. Given the nature of the contact between these different continents, it's remarkable that there was a sharing of knowledge as people fought to hold epidemics at bay. Oh yes, I mean, medical knowledge is going to circulate among among uh, friends, and it's going to circulate among foes. It's going to circulate among everybody. You know, in, especially in the transatlantic slave trade, the the one thing, the one common thing that slave traders, slave owners, anti-slave trade patrols, African slave, the the one thing that they all have in common is that they want to get rid of these diseases. They want to beat these diseases, right? So you, you can actually see in, in the documents this collaboration between slave traders, for instance, and, and their own slaves or, or slave traders and British or French or American anti-slave trade patrols officers. There's quite a lot of this. Also, the, this collaboration is going to allow for the spread of knowledge that is very local. This medical expertise ranged from medicinal herbs to complex surgical techniques. As Professor Manuel Barcia Paz explains, Europeans learned from Africans how to extract the guinea worm. So basically, the guinea worm is a, is a worm that you, you get when you swim in stagnated water and it gets into your skin and you can see it like a protuberance on, on top of your skin. So if you don't know how to extract it, what happens is that you you cut the skin and you try to, to, to take it out and it, it breaks. And that basically makes the whole process very painful, but it still leaves part of the worm inside and that, that part still going to continue to cause the trouble. So the Africans, they, they have devised, because obviously this is an African disease, over centuries they have devised in many parts of Africa a way of making a surgical insertion, inception in the in the skin that would allow them to pull the worm without breaking it. So the Europeans learned that method from the Africans. 
Another facet to the global history of medicine is the story of the trade in medicinal intoxicants and the consequences of this on various peoples over time, particularly during the early modern period. The first intoxicants to be imported into Europe were tobacco and sugar, which became massive imports by the 1620s. This was then followed by cocoa, tea and coffee, which became hugely popular by the early 18th century, and concurrently opium was also transported from the Levant and Asia. It's important to note that all intoxicants were viewed to have medicinal properties and were often sold as such. The trade in these intoxicants had a profound and devastating effect on Native Americans and Africans who were trafficked into slavery. I think it's worth emphasising at the outset that Native Americans were, of course, users of these intoxicants long before they were introduced to European consumers. And to call them new intoxicants in this respect is in many respects something of a Eurocentric uh, misnomer. That's Dr James Brown, early modern historian and Intoxicating Spaces project manager. Uh, this is especially true of tobacco, where within um, indigenous American practice it had many uh, medicinal, cultural and spiritual uh, uses. However, the largest effect of the trade uh, in new intoxicants was, was almost certainly on enslaved Africans, uh, as well as rice, cotton and precious metals, new intoxicants such as cacao, uh, co coffee, tobacco and above all sugar, in a very real sense, drove the Atlantic slave trade uh, as it was promulgated uh, within the Danish, Dutch, English, French, Portuguese and Spanish empires. And there's a very uh, savage irony here that the that many of these uh, commodities, particularly coffee, tea and sugar, um, are associated with civilizedness, civility, gentility, politeness, uh, whereas their underpinnings were anything but. So why uh, did this happen? Uh, basically, the tropical environment of the New World permitted the cultivation of these cash crops on a massive scale uh, for the first time. There had been previous experiments to grow them um, in Europe, but because of the, the climate, uh, they hadn't been especially successful. For the first time, you can grow them on a large scale. However, free European migrants, indentured servants and convicts, uh, and the Native American population, uh, the latter of which had been decimated by the epidemiological impact of colonisation uh, were insufficient uh, to meet the intensive labour demands um, that the plantations created and coerced labour from Africa was the response with the transport of slave-grown new intoxicants back to the old world from the Caribbean and North America uh, making up a third of the slave triangle. So as you'll, you'll probably know uh, this was where manufactured goods and alcohols in fact were transported to the um, Western African coast from Europe. Uh, these were exchanged on the Western African um, coast for enslaved Africans. Enslaved Africans were then taken to the New World from West Africa, uh, the Caribbean and the eastern seaboard of, of America, where they were exchanged with slave-grown commodities, which were then taken back to Europe, uh, making up the, uh, the third half of the triangle. So new intoxicants really are associated with the unimaginable cruelties um, of the Atlantic slave uh, economy, trauma of kidnapping and enslavement in Africa, the terror of the Middle Passage, and the daily horrors of subjugation on uh, slave estates or plantations, which combined long hours and backbreaking work in tropical conditions with militaristic discipline and punishments that included whipping, branding, castration, uh, ear cropping, and amputation.
Now, life for, for, for slaves on, on all sort of new intoxicant plantations was terrible. Uh, but sugar estates, uh, many of them in the British Caribbean, uh, on which around 5.1 million captives worked, have been described as, as being, quote, in a class of their own, unquote, in terms of barbarity, uh, the growth of uh, growing sugar entailed skilled but incredibly gruelling work in hot, low, swampy conditions um, over a very long and intensive uh, crop cycle, which involved cane holing, tending and cutting, uh, and then the carting of these really heavy stalks to mills, boiling houses and distilleries uh, for processing. And sugar plantations, for example, had a mortality rate that was 50% higher than that of coffee plantations from the really intensive nature of the work, but also from disease such as a yellow fever and malaria, uh, which thrived in the low uh, swampy uh, conditions. However, we should, we should also emphasise that archaeological assemblages uh, from slave cabins uh, contained tobacco pipes and teawares, for example, showing how enslaved people incorporated intoxicants into their own uh, vibrant uh, cultures. Part of this culture included the African medical traditions and practices. So for the British Caribbean, we have a number of travel narratives written by Englishmen and, and, and Scotsmen who came to the Caribbean either as slave traders or as folks who owned plantations or were visiting. That's Elise Mitchell, historian of Caribbean and Atlantic slavery, gender and medicine at New York University. Also, you find evidence of enslaved people's medical practices and free Africans' um, medical practices in the legislation in the Caribbean, particularly legislation around Obia practice, which was sort of a broadly defined herbal medical knowledge and healing knowledge that also had spiritual content. And then you also find evidence in plantation records, particularly slaveholders who noted whether or not enslaved people played the role of a midwife on the plantation or were enslaved as sometimes even listed as doctors. And I've seen that as well, or doctresses occasionally. And then the other unexpected place that, that historians haven't spoken as much about is in local vestry records. The almshouses at many major Caribbean ports, such as Kingston, as well as Bridgetown, Barbados, were primarily staffed by free Black women there as nurses. And they were typically, so you find records of them either being paid salaries sort of annually by the local vestry, or you find them paid sort of a subcontracted salary if they were providing special treatments, particularly for a disease um, known as yaws. That's sort of a pustule-producing disease that plagued a lot of enslaved people, but also a number of poor white folks in the Caribbean. The people involved with the administering of medicine varied from place to place. In urban Caribbean environments, you would have primarily in free Black women, free women of mixed African and European ancestry attending poor white folks and sailors, other folks in, in the almshouse. And then on Caribbean plantations, you'd have typically an older enslaved woman who might be in charge of a plantation hospital in the later period or attending enslaved people earlier than that. Another key area where enslaved Africans, particularly enslaved African women, were involved was as midwives and caring for other enslaved women's reproductive health. And there's a historian, Sasha Turner, who wrote a book, Contested Bodies, who talks a lot about kind of how that practice changed over time with the incursions of British physicians in the later 18th century. And another historian, Catherine Paw, has written about the way that the 
traditional African as well as European practices of midwifery were passed down over generations on plantations in Barbados. So you have quite a rich tradition there. But then also among enslaved people and among maroon Caribbean societies, you had Obia practitioners who practiced a mix of different West African um, medical traditions. And they tended to operate outside of the sort of plantation system and outside of the outside of European authority in the Caribbean. And their practices were eventually outlawed and, and persecuted because of their connections to different kinds of slave revolts and, and slave organizing, particularly Tacky's revolt in Jamaica, which um, the historian Denna Patton has written a lot about. And then one other one that's particularly interesting to folks now is enslaved Africans likely introduced smallpox inoculation in the Caribbean sometime in the 17th or 18th centuries. That was a practice that had been used for generations in West Africa by sort of taking a little bit of pus from someone's smallpox pustule and putting it in an incision in another person. And there's quite a bit of evidence in travel narratives, as well as sort of anecdotal accounts in some medical narratives of enslaved Africans continuing that practice in the Caribbean or continuing to exert influence over the way that Europeans practice smallpox inoculation in the later 18th century. It would be a mistake to assume that things remained the same. As time went by, the medical situation appears to have become more and more restrictive. As colonization kind of took shape and as the empire began to take shape, there was British and English authorities were much more concerned with sort of policing and controlling the enslaved. And so I would say the key places where the, you start to see shifts are around some of the early slave revolts, um, particularly after the supposed slave revolt in Antigua in the early 18th century. And then later with Tacky's revolt, you start to see more and more legislation from local British colonies is um, saying that they don't want enslaved Africans or Af- or people of African descent to have access to medicines. They want to be mindful of whether or not they're practicing obia, which they're defining pretty broadly, or other spiritual or herbal practices. And there's much more suspicion around that. You start to see some cases where enslaved Africans are being accused of poisoning their enslavers or other things if they're involved in, the, in medical practices. And you start to see a shift in legislation that's explicitly policing um, Obia and outlawing it. And you see a slew of executions of enslaved Africans who are accused of, of practicing Obia because the leader of, of Taki's revolt was I mean, supposedly a, an Obian priest. And then you, but also at around the same time, by the late 18th century, you start to have the abolitionist discourses in Europe and also sort of circulating throughout the wider British Atlantic. And as a result of those, the reforms that come with that, well, many people tout them as sort of being designed to promote health, designed to promote enslaved people's reproduction and, and providing all of these good uh, sort of quote unquote ameliorative policies. As historians who've examined this more recently, particularly folks like Rana Hogarth, as well as Sasha Turner and Tara Innes, they talk about how this actually created a situation where a lot more English physicians, Scottish physicians, and more, more generally British physicians were coming to the Caribbean and having much more authority on, on plantations, which then sort of allowed for them to make incursions into areas where enslaved people might have had a bit more medical freedom in the past. And you see that in particular around reproductive health, where enslaved African midwives or, or free midwives of African descent used to have a lot more medical authority around reproduction and, and were able to continue some of their West African practices 
and traditional spiritual practices around births. And then once you have these British physicians coming in who are predominantly men as well, with sort of the rise of and the masculinization of obstetrics and the development of that, you start to see these African women lose their authority on plantations and have to sort of go along with these traditions that that are, are not necessarily familiar to them and in some cases um, a bit dangerous. And you see that across the board too in terms of European physicians now having much more authority over how different kind of forms of inoculation are practiced, whether or not enslaved Africans have access to the same kind of herbal medical practices that they used to have and things like that. And then you also start to see as well enslaved and free people of African descent being sort of swept up into these positions within colonial medical establishments, either working as medical assistants for British military settlements or affiliated with barracks and things like that. And you see a bit more authority over spaces like the almshouse as well, where free African women might have had a bit more authority previously. As mentioned at the very beginning of the series, knowledge of the more disturbing sides to medicine is not just important, but necessary. One of the most appalling histories when it comes to enslaved people in North America is that of non-consensual human medical experimentation, which was sadly not unusual. The South Carolina Medical College even boasted to prospective students that it could offer, quote, great opportunities, unquote, for dissection and surgical practice because of the enslaved population. Indeed, J. Marion Sims, known to history as the father of gynaecology, perfected his surgical techniques by operating, without anaesthetic, on enslaved women. He developed the vaginal speculum and techniques for repairing fistulas. We have the names of three of the women he experimented on surgically, Anarka, Betsy and Lucy. Lucy, we know, contracted sepsis after he left a surgical sponge in her urethra and bladder. All of this combines to create a complex medical history rooted in human pain and atrocities in which most people in England were directly or indirectly complicit. Sick to Death's home city of Chester was no exception. Dr James Brown tells the story of the journey of intoxicants from plantations to places such as Benjamin Davis's coffee house on Watergate Street in Chester. So the caffeinated beverages uh, that he sold in, in his coffee room uh, would invariably have been sweetened by sugar. Uh, so let's take this as our example and follow its journey, which would have started, as we've seen, on an English-owned sugar plantation in, say, Barbados uh, in the Caribbean, the horrific circumstances of which we've already seen. And it's here that both the cultivation of, of the sugar canes and initial refinement would have taken place uh, to create um, sort of dark muscovado sugar uh, from the extracted cane juice. This dark, unrefined product uh, would have been shipped in hogsheads or large barrels to Liverpool on a merchant vessel. And after arriving in the port of Liverpool, it would have been further refined, uh, essentially through uh, additional boilings uh, by a domestic sugar refiner or sugar, but quote, sugar baker, where this would involve the final uh, granulation of the product and its pouring into distinctive conical moulds called sugar loaves. Um, so this would have happened in Liverpool. And until the, the mid-19th century, all of this final refinement had to take place within Britain and in other countries, obviously within, within Europe. It couldn't have taken place in the New World. So these sugar loaves, uh, how did they get to Chester? This would have been via an overland trade route uh, or by the so-called 
coasting trade, uh, i.e. a short sea crossing between Liverpool and Chester, where they would have found their way into a local grocer's shop, of which there were a great many in early 18th century Chester. And it's from here that our coffee house keeper, Benjamin Davis, would have purchased a whole comb or a whole sugar loaf, they were sold whole, for use in his combined alehouse and coffee house. Uh, he would have got his, um, his whole cone home. He would have broken it up probably in his kitchen uh, using a sugar axe. And then the smaller pieces um, he would have probably provided uh, to his customers in his coffee room in a little bowl where they would have broken them up into smaller pieces for placing into the, uh, the coffee and tea uh, using a, a smaller device called sugar nips. It's time for us to move on to another global story, that of malaria and quinine. Over time, the word malaria has had different meanings to different people, but the disease we recognise today as malaria was isolated in the 19th century. It's a mosquito-borne infectious disease which causes fever, tiredness, vomiting, headaches and, if not treated, seizures, coma or death. For hundreds of years, the most effective treatment for malaria was the bark from the cinchona tree. It comes from, or was native to the Andes, which is a range, a mountain range in South America, and it was kind of found high up in the mountains, like across Ecuador, Peru and Bolivia. That's Dr Kim Walker, historian of plants and medicines at the Royal Botanical Gardens Kew, and author of Just the Tonic, A Natural History of Tonic Water. Interestingly, originally it was taken from the wild, and it was first discovered as a cure for malaria, it's around the early 1600s that it was found to be successful for treating this disease. And by about 1650, packets of this bark were being sent back to Europe for, for use, for Western medical use for treating malaria. Not a lot of people realise, but malaria was... I mean, today we know that people go away to tropical countries, a bit like perhaps like in Asia or Africa, and they might come back with malaria. But originally, malaria was found also all over Europe and in Britain, all the way up till the first world war. So it was pretty important that this bark started to, to come back to Europe. Now, malaria was certainly a global disease in the 19th century. That's Dr Rohan Debroy, historian of South Asia, colonialism and science, and the author of Malarial Subjects. Until the early 19th century, British language sources considered various parts of Europe, including Britain, as hotbeds of malaria. Now, this perception, however, gradually changed by the mid-19th century, when malaria began to be associated predominantly with various parts of the colonial world, such as Africa, India, and the West Indies. Malaria was considered an endemic disease, meaning malaria could give everyday bodily niggles, such as mild pain, headache, and lethargy, but more virulent forms of malaria could lead to an epidemic killing countless people. In Britain, this high mortality was concentrated around marshlands and fens, where it was a crippling and urgent problem in desperate need of a remedy. Where there's demand, when it comes to supply, there is also room for politics. The Spanish had established, as we know, a transatlantic empire, and Spanish officials carried news about chinchona plants from South America back into Europe. In fact, many believe that the name chinchona is derived from the Countess of Chinchon of Spain, who fell ill in Lima and Peru in the 1630s and was cured by these barks. But there is also a religious dimension. 
The Jesuit missionaries active in South America at the time also played a role in popularizing the use of chinchona barks in Europe. And this is why these barks were also known as the Jesuits bark. Throughout the 18th and early 19th centuries, European chemists struggled to identify the factor, the principle, the active principle within chinchona barks that made them such an effective cure against fevers. And it was in 1820 that Pelletier and Kevin Q in Paris claimed that they had identified such an active principle and called it quinine. Let's explore how it works. Quinine is a a type of chemical called an alkaloid and basically it's quite toxic. So malaria is a parasite in the blood. It's a tiny little cell that lives in your blood cell and munches your blood cells from the inside out, giving you anemia, giving you fevers. And if you don't have your blood and you can't carry oxygen around your body, you know, you're not going to be able to feed your tissues. You're not going to be able to oxygenate yourself and eventually you will die. So this really toxic chemical when you when you take the cinchona bark basically poisons the parasite and uh, kills it before it becomes too toxic for you because you're a lot bigger than one cell parasite and then you can stop taking the cinchona once it's killed the parasite and you get better and they would have taken this in you would have probably taken bark and boiled it up or put it in some wine and then drunk it like that and it was very very bitter it didn't come without side effects. Yes, so um, cinchona bark is quite a toxic plant and if you take too much of it, you can suffer from something called cinchonism, which includes getting ringing in the ears and heart arrhythmia and dizziness and you can lo- lose your ability to walk. Uh, so it's quite a dangerous medicine, but I mean, if you're, you've got malaria and you're going to die from malaria anyway, it's worth taking this short term to kill the parasite and then you can get better. After its discovery in 1820, the question of how to cultivate, trade and consume quinine became increasingly pressing. In the early 1820s itself, commercial manufacture of quinine was initiated in Europe, for example, by Luke Howard in London and Pietro Peretti in Rome. But these manufacturers had to import the raw materials for quinine, the bark of chinchona plants, all the way from South America. This made the manufacture of quinine a rather expensive process. This is why the government intervened. European imperial powers decided to collect chinchana seeds and plants from forests in South America and establish chinchana plantations for themselves in their colonial territories. Accordingly, by the 1860s, chinchana plantations and quinine factories were set up in French Algeria, British India and Dutch Java. Eventually, the Dutch were most successful in cultivating the best variety of chinchona plants with the richest quinine content. This meant that Dutch quinine was more effective, abundant and cheaper in comparison to its British Indian counterpart. By the early 20th century, a Dutch imperial monopoly on quinine was complete. But despite this, In the second half of the 19th century, quinine consumption proliferated across the British Empire. Quinine was notorious for its bitter taste and was administered in numerous ways. It was mostly consumed in the form of a tonic, but quinine was also administered as pills and through injections. To make quinine palatable, the drug at times was served in the form of wine, biscuits, and even tea. 
There were suggestions to make it tastier by coating quinine tablets with sugar and to sell these tablets under the cover of chocolate and sweet meat. These relatively benign attempts to encourage consumerism bellied a more malignant story, the crucial role quinine played in colonising India and Africa. The main purpose of introducing quinine in the European colonies was to protect European imperial soldiers and officials from malaria. Now, it was believed that during the wars of European imperial expansion in the colonies, more European soldiers died of tropical diseases such as malaria than from enemy bullets. West Africa, for instance, many places in West Africa are going to, to be known as the white man's grave. This, this becomes very common. Actually, you can see still, if uh, you go, for instance, to Ghana, to, to Cape Coast Castle, there is a, a plaque there defining the places as the, the, the white man's grave. And, and this is very common. There is actually a famous saying that I, I use in my book that is, it goes like, beware, beware of the bite of Benin. Very few come out when many go in. Many historians believe that quinine helped European soldiers survive in the colonies and win wars in many frontiers. For example, along the Niger in Africa and from Peshawar in Northwest South Asia to Pegu in Burma. Quinine was thus considered not just as a medicine, but also as a tool of empire, a weapon in the arsenal of the imperial army. Apart from its military significance, quinine also carried considerable symbolic significance. The establishment of Chinchona plantations and quinine factories in British India, for example, was showcased as a gift from the British imperial rulers to the colonial subjects. It was advertised as an evidence of the benevolent nature of British imperial rule. A contemporary British observer described the introduction of chinchona plants into India as the pleasantest episode of British rule in India. Therefore, quinine served the empire both militarily as well as tactically. It's now time for us to wave farewell to the early modern period as we begin the journey into modern times. In the next episode, we follow the hunt for the smallpox vaccine. With thanks to today's guests, Elise Mitchell, Dr. James Brown, Dr. Kim Walker, Dr. Manuel Barcia-Paz and Dr. Rohan Deb Roy. This series was written, narrated and produced by myself, Rebecca Adil. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry and it was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org.